It's the True Penny Show with your host James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is True Penny. This is my show. It is WrestleMania weekend, which means it's the WrestleMania Hall of Fame. One of the key movies is WrestleMania Hall of Fame this year. It was Rey Mysterio, commonly known as Rey so we thought it was apropos, because obviously we're not going to review WrestleMania. That would be silly. Um, so we uh, thought it would be apropos to look at one of the most significant professional wrestling cards of the last 30 years that literally changed the way we think about Lucha Libre and professional wrestling and launched some of the biggest names in the industry onto a world stage. And to join me to talk about this massively hyped show that I've just kind of like given an awful lot of roses to is Mr. John Dinsdale. How are you doing, sir? I'm all right. You sort of approached me with about five different show ideas and thought, yeah, we'll do this one. And then, lo and behold, it was a pretty decent show. <laughs> Had you heard of this show before? I'd heard of the ca- about the steel cage match. I'd not heard of any of the other matches. <laughs> this, is like, there was this really violent death cage match, and there was some other stuff as well. Yeah, uh, <laughs> this is the way John's mind works. <laughs> this show is... Triple A's When Worlds Collide, which came from uh, the 11th of June, 1994, from LA Coliseum, sorry, LA Memorial Sports Arena in Los Angeles, California, home of the LA Lakers. And it was a sellout crowd of 13,000. Now, why was that significant? Well, WrestleMania the previous year had gone to the same building, had not sold out, which meant Triple A were outdrawing WWE, or WWF as it was in the time, in California most of the period a period of time you see wwf was not the biggest wrestling company in the world in 1994 it was probably triple a or new japan pro wrestling to be honest with you and certainly all japan pro wrestling was making more money but you know history forgets these things anywho triple a have been an organization if you've been listening to the troop me show you'll know some of the history but been an organization for a couple of years when antonio Pena finally got uh, out from cmll underneath cmll because of his um Booking ideas were not being listening to, and he was trying to produce a more revolutionary, more forward-thinking wrestling product that was a little less conservative, which even today, CMLO is the more conservative of the two promotions. It's more of a traditional wrestling show, as it's been around for a very long time, much longer than AAA has. Um, but now, of course, AAA is the established old guard as well. They've been going for 30-odd years. And, um, well, yeah, I think 93, I think 92, 93. Essentially, they set up as UWA went away. Um, and this was um, a lot of, as you can see here, a lot of former UWA talents on this particular card. Um, and this card developed out of the willingness of AAA to try and crack the North American market. And they struck a deal with WCW to do the televisual production of a pay-per-view called When Worlds Collide. Um, hence the reason why everything you see on camera is WCW graphics, WCW gantries. The only thing that's not is the internal production values of AAA, which were also pretty good at the time. You know, it was the AAA ring, it was the AAA ring guards. It felt like a show in Tijuana. It felt like a show in Mexico City. And they truly did try to bring the essence of Lucha Libre to a North American audience. So, having looked at the opening of this particular show, what were your thoughts on it, John, as Chris Cruz and Otero Rivera uh, introduced you to Lucha Libre? It was, relative, it was pretty, pretty well put together. It was very interesting. And I was actually trying to get 
over the sort of static lines in the video because obviously this was made in 1994 and it's uploaded to YouTube so you've got to get over some of the like technical hiccups in this that not, but yeah this is not all Japan hmm? women this is not all Japan women <laughs> best camera straight out of Sony <laughs> levels of technology yeah. here you can tell they've put a lot of like effort into like the aesthetics of it though there's definitely and the, like one of the first things you hear is the bloody crowd they have got a very hyped up crowd. Oh yeah, this is this is this is heat. You know, you, you see some people get white hot heat these days, and very rarely, very occasionally, do you see people get white hot heat. But this was white hot heat from opening announcements to closing bell for everything. I mean, not just the small bits. I mean, everything. There were they they just loved it. They were there to have a good time. Uh, they were truly into the show. Uh, like I said, the Emir the Emir of the Mexican commentators were Tudor Rivera and, and Andreas Moranis, who were I was very familiar with because I was watching AAA at the time on Galavision, as it still is broadcast every weekend on Galavision, actually in the States. Um, that was one of the things that actually came up this week. One of the people uh, who was talking about Al Vikingo's um, debut in AEW and like, well, he's not known to a North American audience, is he? And I'm like, he's known to an audience of 65 million that's available, 65 million views across all of North America. And he's been the biggest star of that company for the last three years. And they were like, well, which one? Triple A, because it's on Galavision. And it's like, you know, just because you don't watch it doesn't mean millions of other people don't. I do. So, you know, this was an important deal that has been in place for a long period of time. And at the time, I was getting to see all the CMLL shows and AAA shows on Sunday afternoon. About this time, exactly 30 years ago, I'd be sat in front of the telly watching AAA and watching CMLL. Um, so I was very used to listening to them too. These two new voices, Chris Cruz and Mike Tanay. Well, it was the first time Mike Tanay had anchored a pay-per-view show. And as he would go on to be WCW's lead uh, analyst. And Chris Cruz had been a commentator for WCW for quite some time. He had presented WCW Worldwide with Terry Funk, which was one of my favorite um, wrestling commentary teams, actually, at the time. And it was the time period when WCW had the best commentary crew ever. They had Jim Ross, they had um, Bob Cordell, they had Chris Cruz, Terry Funk, um, all of these legendary uh, Jim Gordon Sully as well. And... Um, the Memphis, Memphis commentator who I can never remember his name of, but Banana knows himself, Jerry Lowell's friend. He was there at the same time as well. So to stand out in that company was really impressive. Unfortunately, Chris Cruz these days, <laughs> known as a bit of a Twitter troll and uh, likely to say something stupid at uh, a regular intervals. He of the women don't draw. And has anyone, is there anyone in Ruby, Ruby Soho's life to tell her that she doesn't need all those tattoos and they'll ruin her life? Anywho, let us look back at the good times with Chris Cruz. Uh, so, this show opens with a minis match. Mascarita Sagrada, Octagon Chito, Expectrito versus Expectrito Jariutia Estrada. This went for 8 minutes and 46 seconds and is about as good a professional wrestling match as you're going to get in this particular period. For those of you who don't know, this was what we would know as midget wrestling, but in Mexico, the slightly more inclusive term, minis. Um, is used and honestly Octagon Chito and Masculita Sagrada were two of the best wrestlers AAA had so was Expectrito, he went on to be Mini Vader 
And Chirito Estrada was highly underrated as well. This was a storming little match, eight minutes and 48 seconds. I don't think you will have seen anything quite like this, will you, John? No, we've not seen... We've looked at minis matches before, but they're never given this much, like, time to breathe and just, <clears> like, a chance to show off the sheer ability all of these wrestlers had. Like, they, they kept making a point that's like, oh, the limit is five. It's like five foot. They have to be under like five foot and under because like there was obviously two that you'd consider more stereotypical minis and then two that just look like short people. <laughs> and so you sort of just like, huh. But yeah, the, they sort of set a division limit. And yeah, everyone was working their bloody socks off. As you said, Octagon Cito and Sagrada were bloody brilliant. Espectrito. Es- es- was doing well and yet so was Estrada everyone was working their ass off they had plenty of time to showcase what they were capable of and they put on a proper like professional wrestling match it was really fun to watch and nobody was getting mocked there was no stereotypical like minis shit (laughs) no and intriguingly when you think back to the foundation of Lucha Underground of all the Lucha personnel that were on that show Three of them were on this show, um, Conan, um, uh, Rey Mysterio, and Mascarita Sagrada. You know, it was like the, the, the thread that goes through Lucha Libre, Mascarita Sagrada worked for FMW as well, um, under the, I can't remember which character he was, but he wasn't, he wasn't as Mascarita Sagrada. Um, he and Expectrito would wrestle all over the world over the next 20 years, um, Expectrito would be Mini Vader in the WWF's Minis division in the, what was it called, WWF Astros? I can't remember, the, the, the Lucha show that they did specifically for the Mexican audience. So yeah, there was all sorts going on with this particular match and it was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, I was well used to by these guys by now because they were regular fixtures on TV too and why wouldn't you have them? Masquerade Sagrada as well, absolutely fearless. Like the amazing thing is we still have like really good mini wrestlers now. Like Microman is one of the biggest stars on the wrestling mm-hmm. scene in AAA, MLW and the likes of that. So it's like the trend has never gonna win. And you can kind of understand it because like they work their bloody ass off to make sure that you don't think they're a joke. I would just say, yeah, it was like Masco Sagrada, who was the senior, the full-sized version of Masquerita Sagrada. I hate to say that, but because he was. He was a really good worker as well, but he wasn't in Masquerita Sagrada's um, wheelhouse. Uh, he was wrestling, I think it was Jerry Estrada, in a cage match, and it was blood everywhere. <laughs> it was a proper, like, mask versus hair cage match. And um, at one point, Masquerita Sagrada was seconding Mascara Sagrada, and he climbed to the top of the cage and dove off onto Jerry Estrada. From like and the triple A cage is massive; it's like fifteen foot. Ten feet. Yeah. Ten feet. Yeah, he's just insane. He was, he was, he would do anything to make a wrestling match work, and still works at the same rate now that he did thirty years ago, which is quite remarkable. When his peers have all slowed down somewhat, but there you go. Um. There is only five matches on this card. Pay-per-views with only five matches on. Remember them? <laughs> so, yeah. You don't want to see 13 like matches across a pre-show on a main card. 
Well, there's, there's, there's something to be said for brevity. I'm all for getting the job done these days. I mean, I don't mind once a year Wrestle Kingdom being four and a half hours, that's fine. But it is just like, you watch some shows and you're like, oh, well, WCW was doing 12 matches on a card at this point. The I mean, Wild Eyed Southern Boys versus the Midnight Express in a five-minute tag match for the US Championship. or You know, that kind of thing. When they had more titles than sense. I just love the fact that, like, Mania has become an entire festival to the point that, like, obviously there's been about 60 different shows going on by about, like, so many different companies, and one of them decided to have Masha Slamovich versus Aja Kong on American soil. <laughs> yeah, why not? But you it's have on been... bloody high spots now, <laughs> you bastard. Put it on <laughs> IWTV. Well, uh-huh. next week, uh-huh. we're going to have to divvy up the shows next week, because obviously next week is going to be like, the shows from WrestleMania weekend, who would like to do this? <laughs> and everyone will be like, because Marcus will want to do Supercard of Honor, I know that. And you'll probably want to do Bloodsport, I think. I haven't actually watched it yet. Oh, yeah. And then, I was um, busy with a bunch of deathmatch stuff. Effie's big gay brunch, probably there's two or three of you would like to do that. So, you know, there's things to cover next week. We pretty much know what's going to happen on next week's show. It's just going to, who's going to do what? And it might take us a week to record it. But anywho, let's just move on with the next match. This was a six-man tag team match, which is kind of like what New Japan do in the sense of there wasn't a specific focus in this particular match, but there was someone trying to build somebody up um, and there was kind of like trying to showcase the all of the wrestlers involved. It was Fuerza Guerrera, Madonna's boyfriend, that'd be Luis Piccoli to me and you, and Psychosis, and they defeated Heavy Metal, Latin Lover, and Rey Mysterio Jr. in 12 minutes and 54 seconds of an absolutely blistering match. Um, I will point out here, the first match was four stars from Wrestling Observer, and the second match was four stars from Wrestling Observer. 7.31 and 7.45 from the cage match users. So, you know, this is quality, quality stuff. And while it isn't perfect wrestling presentation by any means, there's a naturalness to it that you sometimes miss in today's professional wrestling when everything's very, very clean. So what did you think of this one, John? Yeah, it was just a nice slice of chaos. It's like just from name value alone, there was a lot to sort of dig into. I was completely cracking up at the fact there was a wrestler named Madonna's boyfriend because, of course, there was a wrestler called Madonna's boyfriend. Yes. Um, I'm not sure Luis Piccoli had ever met Madonna. <laughs> or if Madonna had ever been to Pittsburgh, to be honest with you, but there you go. Um, there was a but... line that commentary made that cracked me up. I can't remember who said it. And it was like... Oh, it was Chris Cruz. It was the... Surprise. Yeah. Does it surprise me that one of Madonna's boyfriends is here? Yes, just just yeah. the one. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, no, I, I mean, Fuerza Guerrero was absolutely exceptional as a professional wrestler. Um, he was he was the guy that traded Hooten to Guerrero. Um, Luis Piccoli, freaking Luis Piccoli, um, sadly missed to this day and still was an exceptional worker in his time. And Psychosis was just on another planet. And it always was one of the things Rey Mysterio said in his acceptance speech, said there would be no Rey Mysterio if it wasn't for psychosis. And you have to say how great a professional wrestler he was. And I was always, 
you know, he did really well in AAA over his whole career, back and forth between WCW and, and AAA in Japan. Um, but I am surprised he never got as far as Ray did, even though, you know, he was a he was a he wasn't really a character worker until he lost his mask. But he was kind of like just such an exceptional bump taker, an exceptional pro, um, and just absolutely phenomenal to watch. And that's the heels. Yeah. <laughs> and then you know, Rey Mysterio Jr. He shows all the promise you could ever imagine in this match. Latin lover. Another wrestler who's sadly no longer with us. But again, he was an absolute mega draw for AAA. The fans, especially the female fans, as you'd imagine from a former stripper, um, loved him to death. And Heavy Metal, who just turned babyface, was so over with the crowd um, after turning his back on the heels. Um, well, not having to turn his back on Rudos, he'd become... And it was basically through wrestling um, El Hijo Dal Santo and Rey Mysterio and, you know, um, wanting, seeing what they were like and how they gelled and the friendships that they had and how much faith they had in each other, which is a great story to tell for a young wrestler. And all six of them could go nonstop. Oh, God, yeah. For like all nearly 13 minutes of this match, it was just go, 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 go. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and as well, Fuerza Guerrero was 40 at the time. I think, how old is he now? He's 69 now, and this was 30, 29 years ago. So, yeah, he was 40 then. And he was just as fast as all the others who were 20 years younger. Insane. Absolutely insane match. And this wasn't, it wasn't like anywhere near the main event. This was just a match to keep the card going. <laughs> Highlight the young stars. Get some people over. And they went out and stole the show, or tried to. Um, they took what would be brewed across like several years of WCW with Rey Mysterio Jr. and Sakosa. Someone's just like, let's put that in a bigger match with a wrestler called Madonna's boyfriend. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, but you think about it, a year, what, a month later, they were at um, uh, Super J Cup, and they wrestled in the semi final match of the second day of Super J Cup. Um, I can't remember what the final was that year. But oh, they, they, they were I'm... they were basically the water cooler match, you know, so like so the so the guys in the semi-final could have 20 minutes off and get a break. And they absolutely stole the show. It was, it's always board. ridiculous to think of like the spots that like Rey Mysterio and Sakosas got put in, and like every time they would bloody steal the show. Doesn't matter how much time they were given, how many other extra moving pieces there were. There. It was a case of if it's Rey Mysterio and Sakosas, that's it. Sure, stolen. Give up now. <laughs> <laughs> the final that year was Chris Benoit versus Great Sasuke, and they stole the show. <laughs> like, you know, two established pros. Yeah, I have a feeling that in that match, uh, Great Sasuke will not have tried to hypnotise Chris Benoit. It was a bit serious. <laughs> yeah, so, so speaking speaking of, next match, bloody Two Cold Scorpio, Pegasus Kid and Tito Santana versus the Blue Panther, Jerry Estrada and La Parker. Like, how is that for bloody name value? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is it. This was, I mean... The whole show was built around IWC, which I would say internet wrestling community, which was a made-up promotion basically for this particular show, and representing IWC or the international wrestling community, I presume, 
was two cold Scorpio, Pegasus Kid, and Tito Santana. Now, Chris Benoit had actually spent a lot of time in CMLL. I think this is his first AAA show. Obviously, him and two cold Scorpio were well known to each other because they were both in the New Japan Dojo. I don't know what Tito Santana was doing here. <laughs> He just seemed to have turned up and was happy to be there. <laughs> it's like, I remember this was the first pay-per-view he was on outside of WWE, I think. Um, but even commentary had no bloody clue what he was doing there. They were kind of just like, Tito Santana's here. He's clearly the biggest guy in the match, but I don't think he's used to this style. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, why would he be? He'd wrestled in North America. Well, no, he'd wrestled in the United States for the majority of his career. You know, and um, he was from California. He's from California. So... No, he's from Mission, Texas. Of course he was. He's West Texas State. He was, yeah, he went to college with Ted DiBiase and Steve Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody and those guys. <laughs> he was part of that class of professional wrestling and wrestled nothing like them. But there you go. Um, I think everyone yeah. wrestled like Brody, to be honest. Well, I suppose Stan did and Abdullah, but, you know. But those mean like you know, and well, Diviossi didn't wrestle either. Neither did it really, I suppose. Um, but yeah, West Texas State guys. Anywho, um, so yes, this was completely alien to him, and they were going up against Blue Panther, Jerry Estrada, and La Parker. Now, La Parker was already building his name in Lucha Libre as a, an outstanding wrestler. Jerry Estrada could really go, and I loved watching him wrestle. He turned babyface not long after this as well and uh, Technicos. And Blue Panther had gone the other way. He had been a Technicos for a long period of time and then had a bit of a slow burn heel turn but was still kind of friendly with the Technicos. He wrestled with the Rudos but was kind of on the same page as the Technicos um, ish, which we'll see in the next match. But the, for this particular occasion, he was proper Rudos. Um, Unsurprisingly, really, the visitors won, because otherwise it would have kind of killed the IWC concept stone dead if they wanted to do it again. And it was only one match that was this was based around. So it was worth it, and no one really lost anything in this match, did they? No, again, it was kind of one of those chaotic roller coaster matches where it was just action non-stop. I just kind of want like a modern day two cold Scorpio versus LA Park match. Because they're both, like, vicious sort of older bastards now who can mm. still go. <laughs> like, I just think it would be really entertaining to see that in, like, 2023. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's it's, it's intriguing, really, when you look at it. Like, the Parker had such a big impact on WCW. He was, a, he was the first heavyweight luchador to really crack WCW. You know, it was down to his character work. And then he's had such a successful career in CMLL, AAA, and then in the Indies ever since. So, yeah, he's he's such a star, of course. But you can see all the sort of innovative shit Too Cold Scorpio was doing. Even in, like, a 15-minute match, he's still busted out things that, like, barely anyone else can do. And it's, yeah, again, it's just, it's chaos. It's continuous um, chaos to sort of pad out a card, but it's really good chaos. I think as well, you also have to think about like Benoit and um, Too Cold were both working for ECW at the time. Who was also an oh, yeah. ECW was also booking Ray and La Parker, not La Parker, booking Psychosis. They were booking Ray and booking Hugh and Two Guerrero. You know, I'm surprised they didn't book La Parker considering he was a bloody chairman. 
Yeah, but he didn't start him in the chair stuff for another year or so. Ah, true. This is yeah. yeah, this is 94. He was still kind of like working on building this arrogant character up, which he was really Actually, good. Actually, this was before... I think this is before ECW went hardcore. It was still just... I was at 92. Uh, ECW went hardcore in 93 when Heyman took over the book completely from Eddie. For, is it East uh, Championship yeah. Wrestling? They had Sandman as a fucking surfer. Yeah, well, yeah, but that was his character from the old, from even in New York when he was wrestling in, in New Jersey and stuff. Um, but that was uh, when, oh, Dominic Eddie, whose name escapes me. Ah, Eddie Gilbert, yeah, when Eddie Gilbert was booking. You know, Eddie Gilbert was booking the show and he was really trying to book himself as the lead guy in the, in the show. Um um, and they had loads of, and to be honest with you, it was Eddie, I think it was Kevin Lawler, um, Jerry's other son. He went with Eddie to go and do produce the show. And when Heyman, and Heyman kind of like got in as Eddie's second in command. And then Eddie took over the book, sorry, Paul took over the book when Eddie left and Kevin Lawler was still kind of wanting to produce and stuff. And that was when Paul. Kevin said, but well, the, the actual bingo hall itself had loads of production values, but Paul was said, well, they said to him, why, why don't you use it? And he's because he had a massive light rig, you know, it's like really, really well done light rig and professional quality. And he said, because it's not as good as WWE should be, so don't use it, work on something else. And he said, that's where Kevin learned a load, load of lessons about how to book a show and how to present a show from Paul. And one of the things that he did was find talent that nobody else was using. And so he talked to Conan and he booked Rey Mysterio and he booked uh, Psychosis and Juventud. And that really changed the concept of how Lucha could work in Mexico. I'm sorry, in, in North America. You know, the the Juventud versus Rey match uh, in the Mexican death match, that was insane. Him and Psychosis, there was one match where Juventude Frankenstein and Ray on the bonnet of a car. <laughs> just insane stuff like, that all, ECW could get all away him with. Just managed to branch so many different territories together to well, like work through North America. Because obviously, like Mexico had links with Japan and Japan had links with Mexico. And then Paul Heyman's like, hey, I've got this company called ECW. And he's just like with FMW and AAA. He's like, hey, do you want to come work in North America for a bit? And it's just like, yeah, sure. He was in a lucky place, though, because Stampede was dying. And there was a lot of high talent workers available to him from there. The East Coast indie scene was growing. He'd just taken over, really, the tri-state territory, which already had a strong audience. I'm not saying it still takes somebody to put everything in place. But you know, he was he was in the right place and FMW had proved it could be done the year before. That's always the big thing I go back to is like, yeah, but Anita did it first. And he did it with the same formula, a bunch of guys nobody else wanted, and found ways of using them nobody else could. And Paul Heyman had way less explosions. Mm, that's basically because I think because he didn't have a budget. <laughs> that's basically it. If Paul could have blown something up, he would have tried to. I'm pretty sure Anita's made another company, except this time it's within DDT. Yeah, yeah, I think DDT are running that. They're running. They're doing the production for the Antlers and stuff. So yeah, I was it's intrigued. Like FWP to... is still a thing, but there was another one. Is it? Is it the Anita Explosion Project? No, but it's somewhere along those lines. I think. 
because we'll, obviously... we'll have to get Brett back and find out what's going on. <laughs> but anywho, DDT have just taken over the world. Like they had massive show out in Mania Week. They've had like they just keep expanding, and it's so like great to see because obviously they're one of the most creative companies out there, and there are so many people clamoring to wrestle a doll. Which is the best, another one of the best things ever about wrestling. There you go. Yoshiko versus, um, oh, Orange Cassidy coming up on a TV screen near you soon. Anywho, let us move on. The next match was the semi main event. It was Mass versus Hair, two out of three falls for the AAA Tag Team Championship of the World, being the champions, La Parra de Teller, La Parra de Terra, the terrible couple. Eddie Guerrero and Love Machine Art Bar against El Hijo, Del Sando and Octagon. This, ladies and gentlemen, was one of, if not the best, tag team matches I've ever seen in my life to this point. It's not perfect. There are blown spots. There are spots that really shouldn't have been attempted. <laughs> there is a lot of mess. But the story that's told in this match is the perfect Lucha Libre match, in my opinion. It's not about moves, though there's plenty of flashy moves. And it's not about story. It's how you link the moves to the story, the story to the moves, and tell your story in 20 minutes. There's lots to be said about this match, which you shouldn't really say in one sense, because a lot of it was based on, essentially, racism, um, specifically um, anti-Mexican racism, because that was kind of the deal of La Paris de Teller, Eddie Guerrero and Love Machine because they were Americans who were making fun of Mexicans because they couldn't get to the States themselves and they were implying that a lot of these fans in the audience were wetbacks, which of course neither of us would have supported in this particular day and age and shouldn't have been supporting back then really, to be honest with you. But that was wrestling of its time. However, they drew that much heat and Santo and Octagon were that loved that it created such an incredible atmosphere. And this was just on another level as far as he's concerned, you just don't get it anymore. <laughs> and it's not because of the racism. It's because they loved Eddie when he was a babyface and they hated him when he turned. They always hated Art Bar. And so you pair those two together and they can feed off each other and build this heat, but it has to go somewhere. And I think that's what a lot of issues are with modern booking is everything's about heat, but it's never about the blow off. And this was an example of how you blow something off perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. In my opinion, anyway. What did you think of this, John? Yeah, I loved the match, but I'm I'm still just cracking up a bit because you're like, we don't get this anymore. And it's not because of the racism. <laughs> it isn't because of the racism. It's because they love those characters so much and hated those characters so much. I know. It, it's just the fact that like we've grown to a time period where we need to clarify that. It's not just <laughs> taken as a given. Oh man, yeah. I, I don't. I don't know how much more I can add to what you've just said because, like, as an outsider looking in at this match for the first time, like, yeah, it's bloody brilliant. It's got a whole different level of like audience investment that you don't get these days outside of say a match I watched like earlier on today. But again, death matches have some of the most like rabid fan bases on the planet that will buy into almost anything especially when you give them compelling characters. And yeah, I kind of see the same thing in this, because you've got two, like, 
pure heroes against two despicable villains, and the despicable villains are doing everything possible to be despicable villains with added racism because it's the 90s and you could get away with that shit. Not saying they should have, but they got away with that shit. Mm. And yeah, between the sort of convoluted match rules, the sort of rough nature of some spots, things that should, that happened that shouldn't have, things that were attempted that probably shouldn't have been, it's just, it feels real. <laughs> and like somewhere right now, the, it's still real to me, damn it, guy has just shivered because his point has been made and he has some validity to it because holy shit people were buying this left like like it was a real fight like everything hinged on this because these two were going hell for leather to protect their masks and protect their hair and to be fair you you knew there was only one way this was going especially if like you know modern day lucha but even with that sort of knowledge going on it didn't distract from the fact that you were in one of the most compelling wrestling roller coasters you have seen. With yeah. like just a wealth of talent. And yeah, this probably probably cemented like El Hio del Santo and Octagon as the guys for like the next two years at minimum within the company because they beat like the terrible couple. They shaved the terrible couple bald. Yeah. And they yeah, saved Mexico from racism. <laughs> it, it's, it's a real shame that Hell Hunter, El Santo uh, got divorced less than two years later and had to turn heel. But there we go. <laughs> that's 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 heat for another day. Um, let's just talk about the heat in this match. So this match was laid out under Lucha rules, which obviously, as you probably know by now, means no tags required. As soon as someone hits the floor, you can go straight into the match. Um, double teaming allowed. There's a five count for that. 20 count outside the ring. But the interesting thing was the pinfalls. You had to pin both team members, not just one. It was a bit like a Texas Tornado match, but not quite. So as a result of that, the first ball went to the champions. Eddie Guerrero pinned Del Santo and Love Machine with a frog splash, because you should remember that Eddie always used the frog splash because Art used the frog splash. Um, he eliminated Oxygen. Then Eddie eliminated Helhijo de Santo, and Oxygen then had to come back and eliminate Eddie Guerrero and Love Machine to get the sun back on the second floor. Then Love Machine managed to sneak a pile driver, which was banned in AAA at the time, I think he still is, onto Octagon, who did a brilliant stretcher job, which left El Hijo del Santo by himself. But Blue Panther, the Rudos, who was seconding uh, Octagon and El Hijo del Santo, managed to pull a fast one and pile drove Love Machine so Santo could get the first pinfall. And he then pinned Eddie Guerrero to take the match two to one. And La Pelle de Terra lost their hair to El Santo as Octagon was taken to the back. With, of course, Antonio Pena and all the attendants looking after him, giving him as much babyface heat as he possibly could. Helhijo del Santo, of course, because he's El Santo, <laughs> got all the praise. I do love that. Cheaters got cheated out of a cheating win. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's the way to do it. And it is just like, well, who do we have as our second? Well, we could take one of the baby faces, but really we need a Rudo to do this job properly. <laughs> and it's been the reason why the, they picked Panther was even the Rudos didn't like um, La Para de Terra. You know, they were part of a faction with Conan who had been um, feuding with Cien Caras for the previous 12 months. 
uh, the Dynamite Brothers had hated them, and even the Dynamite Brothers, who were the most overheel team in Mexico possibly ever, uh, were considered the baby faces going up against Conan and um, Eddie Guerrero and Love Machine. So yeah, this was how much heat you could, how much heat could you have? You can have all the heat in the world, but you've got to blow it off at some point, and this was the perfect way to blow it off, I thought. So then, shall we go to our main event? Yeah, this this was the match I'd heard about from the show. You were like, oh, should we do One World Collide? And when I sort of heard that name, I'm like, is that the one with the Conan and Aguayo cage match? And lo and behold, it is the Aguayo Conan cage match I knew. See, yeah. I'm not entirely out of the loop when you bring up this historical stuff. <laughs> Just mostly. <laughs> So Paraguayo was the lead heavyweight babyface for AAA at the time. Conan had been the lead triple heavyweight babyface, but literally Conan was the most popular wrestler Mexico had seen since El Santo Senior. He was wrestling literally seven days a week and twice on Sundays. He sometimes wrestled 10 times in a week um, and was just like making towns as much as he possibly could. And eventually, before the fans turned on him, he turned on the fans, which is often the way in these situations. I give you Hulk Hogan is a good a classic example of a heel turn just before things got out of hand. And because Conan had been overexposed, he was the perfect guy to do it. Of course, he just made him more popular. <laughs> so Paraguayo, who was like the ultimate underdog babyface, going up against Conan for the AAA World Championship was the ideal way to blow off this bit. Well, it wasn't for the AAA World Championship. It was a non-championship match. But this was, uh, this was the ideal way to blow off this particular feud and set a new direction for the company. Um, Paraguayo wins in a match that's not technically great, but it's full of emotion. You know, can the old man do it against the young rising star is always a classic story to tell. There is Conan coming in looking like a Greek god, carrying two world championship belts. It had everything about it. And then Aguayo's sworn enemy, Cien Caras, comes down to help out Aguayo once um, Eddie Guerrero and Luis Piccoli come in to save uh, Conan, a beat down on Aguayo, the Dynamite Brothers come to save Aguayo. Not intentionally, but they don't want to see Conan winning, so they make sure that Conan doesn't win. And that's where the match goes from there. There's escape cage rules, which again isn't my favourite, but this was a really well-played version of the escape cage rules. What did you think of this, John? Yeah, it's it's not the sort of smoothest match you'll ever see. It's quite drawn out at times. It's obviously got the typical escape the cage. Oh my God, I'm crawling at a snail's pace to climb up something that could be done in like three fucking paces. But it, it's got all the drama and the intensity and the heat that you could want. And it's it's trying to tell a story. There's a lot of blood, a lot of violence. A lot of risky throwing brass knuckles over a cage. <laughs> so it takes it for you to overshoot that and you probably concussed an audience member. Yeah, I would have thought just like passing it through the cage would have been easier myself because they're not that big. But I suppose visually for the folks at the back, when you've got 13,000 people in the building. Oh, you know, just keep hold of them. Put them in a corner. It's an ODQ match. Like, you don't need to hide these things. <laughs> And it's not like Aguayo's going to get up and use them on you. You've knocked him the hell out. He's lying there in a puddle of his own blood. 
there's some things that just kind of yeah you you look at it and you're like why did you do that exactly why is this here so, but, so, by, by the way lying in a puddle of his own blood is paraguayo's default position I, I think he got like knocked in the head a couple of times and that was it he was just off it, it's oh. like rick flair it's like you you, you pin prick and that's it it just it's just there you're bleeding now yeah for it like taffy but i just yeah he just but he has this something about him it just makes you go that guy's interesting i want to know what the guy's about um and i mean he was a lifelong heel most of his career this was where they're like where he's having a renaissance as a baby face but yeah no he was just just this match is just like on another level good in the sense of like pushing the emotional buttons it's not unless I, I, they must have been like a bit concerned when they saw them fall like tear through the entire moveset and you know try to do an elevated frankensteiner off somebody's shoulders um yeah you know and they were like, oh we'll follow that all right okay right, right then let's just go steal the hearts of thousands and that's what they did because it was the only way you could take advantage of the situation they were in they had a really hot crowd so they went for heat over technique because i don't think either of them had chops to keep up with them for which is fair enough or you know there was a little bit of a come down in technicality but you didn't feel it because you were just invested i think the only time i've seen more heat in a mexican wrestling match is one of the ones i covered for the patreon this week where the match literally nearly got like had to be stopped because a wrestler threw a cinder block at another guy's head yeah it took literal attempted murder for a crowd to get more heated than they did at this cage match yeah this is this entire card is just so well done it doesn't outstay its welcome the matches are concise, they're the right length, and they tell the right stories at the right time. It's not a perfect wrestling card because the wrestling scrappy um, and in spots isn't particularly inspiring, but it's certainly ahead of its time. And you can see why it's so important to wrestling history. It sets the tone for what's going to come for the next 30 years. And Lucha Libre, which isn't, you know, an American wrestling fans go to, suddenly becomes the TV show to watch and has remained pretty dominant in the Mexican market for the last 30 years. It's the more popular show over CMLL. Um, it's difficult to say like from a live point of view because they don't do their own live shows. All the independent promoters are either affiliated to CMLL or AAA or are in the true independence and then they get the stars assigned to them. I think Crash is pretty much, this, pretty much the same. So, you know, it's it's a different kind of way of working professional wrestling because it's a purely televised production product. Um, and this is kind of starts around this particular period of time where things are becoming, though AAA was touring because they didn't have a home base, they were doing most of their shows for TV at this particular point. And it's, it intrigues me, the Mexican model and how it works and the variations within the Mexican model because it's not the same. I mean, in, sense, in a sense, it's a way the American shows went in the sense of, like, impact wrestling is now purely televisual. There's very little live gate other than the pay-per-views that they use. Ring of Honor has become the same thing. AEW has been for a long time. It's only just started touring. And it's AAA and CMLL that really kind of set that tone, more so AAA. 
they've not just been an influence in the sense of the amount of wrestlers that they encouraged and nurtured they've also been leaders in the way to present professional wrestling as a money-making entity have you have you any other comments on this show i was gonna say i can't argue with what you said there i i was honestly surprised because i saw this was like a five match card and i was like ha that means it's either going to be really quick or everything's going to drag out like a new japan show and thankfully it was wasn't either really everything had its time to breathe everything felt balanced and yeah it was a really well put together well presented wrestling show i have no complaints one other thing everyone was treated like a star like i just they all got their entrance they all got uh, a model to go out to the ring with them they all looked like stars they looked larger than life and I'm not saying that doesn't happen today, but it does, you know, it is just a bit, it's a bit, I suppose, partly because of the, like, the, the things that were in, the, the, the wrestlers' lives are no longer the secret they were back then, so that kind of, I would say it diminishes them, like... Are you, you telling me that Madonna's boyfriend wasn't actually Madonna's boyfriend? I was no. lied to. <laughs> By a wrestling promoter? God damn no, man. But I mean, it's like, you know, Hiroshi Tanahashi's, Hiroshi Tanahashi's Instagram this week was him and Shinsuke Yakamura having lunch the other day. Um, he was hanging out with Lex Luger at WrestleCon. And you don't get that. It didn't happen back then. There was no avenue for it to exist. So even these wrestlers who don't, like, are going into a new market and are unknown to the wrestlers that are there, they feel like massive stars, even, you know, you don't know necessarily who they are. They had to go and connect with an American audience really quickly. And mission accomplished, you know, and they all ended up on American TV, nearly all of them. Um, Puerza Guerrero didn't, Latin Lover didn't, uh, Jerry Estrada didn't, but all of the others, <laughs> all of them. Um, I said, but yeah, even well, Love Machine wasn't alive for much longer after this, but then again, he'd also just come off of American television. So, yeah, it's it just. Insane, this particular match. El Hijo del Santo and Octagon would also tag with a sushi eater at some point too. You know, what more could you want? <laughs> this was an insane professional wrestling card that is really going to stand the test of time and I hope we're still talking about it in another 30 years. We will find out, I guess. Thank you very much for listening to the Troopany show today. And intriguingly, this is a good point. We've talked about this show for about 55 minutes for a five-match show. That's 10 minutes per match. And there are some 13 match cards in the last year that we've looked at we couldn't actually fill an hour with, which will tell you how important this show is. Anyway, thank you for listening to the Troopany show today. My name's James Troopany. Where can we find you on the internet there, John? You can find me at Twitter handle John Deathman. I don't have a blue check mark. I don't think anyone does these days. Um, that is the gateway to lead you to my writings, ramblings, opinions, pictures from shows I'm reviewing. You can find me on Instagram at John underscore Deathman, which is kind of the same, just with more pictures. And if you're feeling particularly generous, I have a Kofi co- a tip jar, or you can find me on Patreon at the Deathmatch Digest, which will give you weekly sort of deathmatch articles plenty of free reviews plenty of little extra pieces that go up and then obviously the paid for articles that give you deep dives into deathmatch incidents including 
what I referenced in the show, the Angel or Demonio cinder block incident where he nearly killed El Cuervo. There you go. Yeah. Patreon.com at Deathmatch Digest. You can find me at Sheriff Flamestar on the Twitter. You can find me at Sheriff Flamestar TX on Instagram, though that's very guitar and car heavy. Um, you can also find me uh, on Mastodon. I'm Sheriff Flamestar there as well. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter and on Instagram, Troopy Show. You can find us on Discord, Troopy Show Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and Patreon, The Troopy Show, where you can keep us free forever for everyone. We were on numerous social medias before, you know, Elon finally gives up. We're hoping soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, take care. Have a good week. Next week, it'll be The Collective and various other shows that we'll be having a look at. We're going to go divvy them up now and see who wants to do what. Take care. Have a good week. And we'll see you soon. Bye.